Hi everyone, this is Seba. This month on Rework, we're actually partnering with another podcast called Immigrantly, hosted by Sadia Khan. If you haven't heard it before, it features complex and nuanced conversations about the immigration experience and America. We're especially excited to share this particular episode that explores citizenship through a historical lens featuring NPR podcaster Ramdeen Arabui. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Immigrantly. This is your host, Sadia Khan, and I am looking forward to another enlightening and fantastic episode. I hope you're all slowing it down and soaking up the sun as we come to the end of our first week of July. Now, more than ever, I feel this electricity in the air. Part of it is being back in the studio. The other part is that Immigrantly is growing, entering new discourse and communities. Believe it or not, we are currently featured on Apple Podcasts' browse page, which we are really excited about. I was on PBS NewsHour this past weekend talking about what it means to be an American, the paradoxical nature of this identifying term, and how American has changed with time and experience. What I shared on PBS isn't new in any way. In fact, one of our most used questions is asking guests to define America in a few words or a phrase. But I was so pleased to be offered this larger mic and to expand the conversation. Quite fittingly, in this episode, we are looking at a segment of the American identity that many take for granted. Citizenship. But we are looking at it through a historical story-bound lens. I am particularly excited for today's episode because we have a fellow podcaster in our midst, Ramtin Arablui, the host and co-producer of NPR's podcast, Throughline. It's one of my favorite podcasts. It's a show that explores history through creative, immersive storytelling designed to reintroduce history to new audiences. Throughline tells emotional stories of people from the past in their historical context and unapologetically challenges a lot of the narratives we accept in society. Henry George is pretty much the equivalent of a rock star. He was huge in his lifetime. According to new Gallup polls, more than half of Americans identify as pro-choice. Just under 40% identify as pro-life. And two-thirds believe abortion should be legal and in, in the first trimester of They took things to a new level. It happened at the annual Aryan Nations World Congress in Idaho. Editor Julie Kane there was a in Chinatown, San Francisco on a people. cool Sunday afternoon. She's in one of the oldest Chinatowns in the world, a place where Chinese immigrants have been moving to for over... Ramtin embodies this perspective personally and professionally. Born in Iran... He immigrated to the U.S. with his family as a child and later graduated from St. Mary's College of Maryland with a B.A. in psychology and history. 
Along with hosting and producing, Ramteen is also a trained audio engineer and has written and mixed music for many award-winning podcasts, including TED Radio Hour and Hidden Brain. I am so excited that Ramteen has generously offered his time to us to talk about an episode he reported on back in early June called By Accident of Birth. It's about the story of Wong Kim Ark, who, after returning from a trip to China in 1895, was barred from re-entering the country according to the Chinese Exclusion Act, which denied citizenship to Chinese immigrants. Though Wong had been born in the U.S. and lived his whole life there, the agent said he was not a citizen. Wong was moved from steamer to steamer for months, but he was able to contact representatives from the Chinese Six Companies, a consortium of Chinese business owners that often hired legal representation for people subject to discrimination. His subsequent legal battles culminated in the 1897 Supreme Court case, the United States versus Wong Kim Ark, a case that would forever change the path of American immigration law and play a pivotal role in the ongoing battle over who gets to be a citizen of the United States. So let's get started. I am a huge fan of Throughline. I listen to it religiously. So yeah, I'm a bit starstruck right now. <laughs> well, it's, the respect is mutual. I came across your show, I think, a few years ago, or whenever it came out, when it was written up in some top list. And I just really appreciate what you're doing. I feel like in a lot of ways we're like colleagues in our thinking about the way to tell stories and what kind of stories we should be telling. Oh, so thank it's really, you. I, when when Emma brought this up, both Rund and I were very happy. And uh, Rund is on vacation. That's why she couldn't be here. But um, we're really happy to do this. Thank you. This means a lot to us. We'll jump right into the episode. I am excited to talk about something that is so real to me as an immigrant mother, as a naturalized citizen. As I was listening to this particular episode, I was feeling so many different emotions. Right from being frustrated to being scared, almost scared of the conversation, which rings so true even today.、Mm -hmm. Which is crazy, right? This was happening in 1895. Yes, Ramzan, as a storyteller, I am curious to know why did you choose this story? Why did you think this story needed to be told? And how did you come across it? So I'll start with the how did we come across it? Julie Kane, who is our editor and showrunner for Throughline, who's been working with us for a few years, who's amazing. Like many other people who work in media, we have a Slack channel that we share things that we find interesting on, so articles and other things. She sent across an article about Wong Kim Ark, and I had taken a course where we learned a lot about like the history of American immigration, and this story had come across. But when I saw the name and I saw the article, it like came back to me in that moment,、huh. and a bunch of us got really excited about it because. We had had conversations in the past about birthright citizenship、mm -hmm. and its history and what it means, and it's mostly because several people on the show are either naturalized citizens or birthright citizens or second or third generation、mm -hmm. uh, immigrants. 
So this was an experience that was real in our families. And these are people on our show who come from everywhere, you know, from China to Iran to Palestine. We have a very diverse set of folks who work on the show. So everyone was really excited about it because for us, it tells a bigger story about what it means to belong somewhere as a human being and how much that idea of belonging and being a part of a nation state is contingent upon the political context of that moment. And for us, it was a reminder about some very good things about American history, which is it is a country in which this fight has happened in the past and that the Supreme Court of the country, and it's been like consensus for the most part for a very long time, that if you're born here, you're then an American citizen Mm. and you then belong, right? Right. But on the other hand, like many other countries in the world, this had to be fought for very, very hard. A lot of people suffered through that. And the reality is the conversation about birthright citizenship comes up with every election cycle. Absolutely. Birthright citizenship, where you walk over the border, have a baby, congratulations, the baby's now a U.S. citizen. That would reconsider birthright citizenship. We want to look at at American law that may be used as a magnet to draw people into the immigration reform bill to Congress, provide a roadmap to citizenship for 11 million undocumented immigrants. And so we thought it is important for our listeners and for us as people who live in this country to understand what Wong Kim Ark, specifically that specific story, what he had to go through as a human being and the people who fought for him and supported him went through in order to assert this right that's in the 14th Amendment to Hmm. say, really, we all count. All of us who are born here, we all make up what is the United States, what is the kind of polity of the United States, and we all deserve equal recognition under the law. It's a fight that will always be happening in the United States, and so we thought it was really important to tell that story now. You're absolutely right, and there are so many questions around that, but just for those listeners who've not had the opportunity to listen to this particular episode, the specific social and political context had everything to do with the events that were happening at the time, right? Correct. Could you give us the overview of what is important to know about this time period specifically and explain the anti-Chinese sentiment that came about during the late 19th century and how Chinese Americans were othered at the time. Yes. So I'm channeling all of the historians that we spoke to for this episode and the Hmm. research we did. So in that spirit, I want to take one step back earlier in the 19th century. Early in the 19th century, as the United States was expanding westward into the continent. So, you know, it's important to remember the United States began as a colony that had states basically all across the East Coast. And as time went on, in a bunch of different ways, they purchased or took Hmm. land and started to move westward. As the country moved westward, they needed people to populate those lands and to farm them because the way they viewed it is the only way to conduct what they called manifest destiny, which is to take the entire continent. You needed Americans or U.S. citizens or people who considered themselves American or would consider themselves American populating those states, taking them over. So there was a bunch of laws, including something called the Homestead Act that was passed that encouraged immigration to the United States and essentially allotted people parcels of land if they came here and just took them in Western states like Oklahoma, Hmm. all the way to California. And so most of those migrants who came to the U.S. were from Europe. Yeah. So like the original people who lived in the colonies, they were from the same continent. That didn't mean that they were always accepted. Irish people were often othered as well. 
But over time, they became more and more accepted into the American consciousness and considered Americans. And so many of these people came in the 19th century and started to populate the West. Mm -hmm. As the 19th century went on, the U.S. started to develop technologies, including railroads, to try to connect that land that they had now taken over. Mm. In the process of creating those railroads, they started to bring in migrants from China. So migrants from China were welcomed initially to help build those railroads. Many of them had technical expertise. Some of them didn't. But they were a new labor force that was allowed to come into the U.S. and help develop the railroad. They did that work over the course of decades in the mid-19th century. But as the 19th century went on, the Civil War happens. After the Civil War, there's a period of economic recession, almost depression. As we know now, the U.S. economy was not that much different. There was booms and there was busts, depending on what economic state of the country was at the time. So as things got more difficult economically and jobs became more scarce, particularly in the Western states, many started to scapegoat Chinese Americans as the reason why there were no jobs. It's similar rhetoric we hear today about Mexican Americans and Central American migrants. And so the rhetoric was, look, these people are taking our jobs. They're not allowing us white men to find jobs. And even what's interesting, and we go into this in the episode, is even labor unions, even folks we think of as being left of center in their political leanings, right. even they pointed to Chinese Americans and scapegoated them. So they demonized Chinese Americans in terms of economics. At the same time, there's a cultural demonization happening. Now, these things are intertwined, right? You can't really say they're separate. Both of them feed into the other. But the cultural demonization was that Look, Chinese people will never be able to assimilate into this country. They'll never be able to adopt our customs and become part of the kind of American polity, the way that, let's say, Irish people or Italian people mm. were able to. Now, there's no truth to that, right? Like right. we know now <laughs> that many Chinese Americans, even then, had began to assimilate into the country. I mean, we'll go into it later, but even Wong Kim Ark's descendants are an example of that, right? right? But that was a rhetoric. So, they can't assimilate. On top of that, they were pointing to Chinese women who participated in sex work. Mm. There's no way to quantify exactly how many Chinese women were participating in sex work, but it was an archetype or a stereotype that was used to say, look, they're bringing vice into our country in cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles, and so we need to stop that. And so the Page Act was passed in the 1870s, I believe, which then said no Chinese women, single Chinese women are allowed to come into the United States. Mm. So on multiple levels, Chinese Americans were demonized at the end of the 19th century. And for the most part, historians agree, the reason for that were the economic tensions that arose in the years after the Civil War and also the racial tensions that arose in the years after the Civil War because suddenly non-white workers were competing with white workers for jobs. That was the reality. But the notion that it was that competition that was causing the economic depression was a very typical narrative we see in American history where scapegoats are found for very complex economic issues. So that was the context in which Chinese people were dealing with. Now, last thing I want to say is this wasn't just like politicians saying bad things on the bully pulpit or newspapers publishing very bad things about Chinese or saying very negative things about Chinese people living in America. They did do that, but it went a step further. There was violence. Right. All throughout those years, there were violent attacks on Chinese enclaves and towns and individuals throughout the Western United States. You know, Ramzin, as you're describing the historical context of what was happening at the time, I can't help but think that the American society in general hasn't 
evolved in terms of its approach to immigrants, especially non-European immigrants. Why do you think that is the case if we were to bring it to the current context or what's happening in the broader social and political context? Well, I'm not sure if I completely agree that it has not evolved. And again, this is just my personal view. Hmm. I think working on this episode, what I saw was an America in the late 19th century that like today, I would say the similarities are that is there is always going to be xenophobia. Right. There is always going to be scapegoating of immigrants. And I think that's not just true in the United States. I think if you look all over the world, this is a problem. Ever since the birth of nation states, where it was like a, there was a dividing line of a border and a passport and all those other concepts. And, you know, we need to remind listeners that this is a new idea. Nation states have only really been a thing for maybe a couple hundred years. Right. In the scope of all of human history. But... Everywhere around the world, this is a problem. There's an inside group and an outside group that is created by this thing called the state. Now, that's always been there, and that's still there today. However, the level of violence, mass violence, and mass exclusion that we see at the end of the late 19th century, Hmm. we just don't see that today at the same level. And it's, in my view, because the cultural and systemic values of the United States have improved and evolved. The fact is, I'm an example of that. My family moved to the United States, Iranian immigrants. I was born in Iran in the 1980s, not that long after the 1979 hostage crisis, in which the entire country for an entire year was getting daily propaganda. After 30 days of unsuccessfully trying to get the American hostages out of Tehran, the government of the United States is now trying to get the deposed Shah of Iran out of this country. Through the new anti-Iranian propaganda. Now, was it justified? I don't think so, because the people who are doing the hostage crisis were just a small portion of the Iranian population, a radical portion of it, right? But that anger, and there were attacks against Iranian-Americans, etc. But when we moved here, there were Americans who welcomed us. You know, we came through Catholic Charities, which was the group that sponsored our family, and we were not Catholic. Hmm. But these people took us in. They never tried to convert us. They just <laughs> supported us because they believed genuinely in the promise of the United States being able to help people who were coming from difficult situations. And in the situation of my family, it was during the Iran-Iraq War, and it was really to leave the country so that my brother wouldn't be drafted into the war. Yeah. And that, I would argue signifies that while there is this dark side to the way the U.S. has treated immigrants in its history, Wong Kim Ark case, which you can talk more about in a second, is an example of that. There is this other side of it. We mm-hmm. cannot forget that there were white American lawyers who represented Wong Kim Ark. There were white activists who supported Wong Kim Ark's case because they believed in the promise of equality mm-hmm. and civil rights. So they may not have been the majority. They may have been fewer number then than they are now, people who had that viewpoint towards immigrants, but they were there. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, America is a country in which, and we'll get into this case, a racist Supreme Court, like the one that ruled on Wong Kim Ark's case, still ruled in his favor. So that would be just my only counter is that in some ways, The U.S. has not evolved. I agree with you. Xenophobia is still very much real, but in some ways it has. Mm -hmm. And the ways that it has are what I laid out a second ago. I think it's just way more welcoming than it has Mm -hmm. been in the past. Ramtin, I want to circle back to what you just said about a racist Supreme Court handing down decision in favor, right? Yes. Now, as I was listening to the episode, Amanda Frost, a professor who helped tell the story during this episode, mentioned that in a way the ruling of the Supreme Court is bittersweet 
because it was less that the Supreme Court was more sympathetic to children of Chinese immigrants, but rather that they couldn't undo the citizenship of the children of Europeans slash white immigrants in the U.S., right? Could you talk a little bit about that and how does that change perspective in terms of whether it was a verdict cementing the belonging for Chinese immigrants versus the racial hierarchy that exists within the U.S.? That's a very, very good point. I think it's both. So I will say, Amanda Frost, she's amazing and she's right. The Supreme Court almost couldn't have ruled another way. But that's partly because the way the 14th Amendment was written, it was written without a racial language. Right. So the writing of it opened the door for this ruling. And the truth is this, though. I'm not a legal scholar, but there were other cases that the Supreme Court ruled on. Hmm. Plessy versus Ferguson was one of the cases I believe that court ruled on, which many people thought there's no way they could have ruled that way. Hmm. What they were ruling on, they could have done the same thing in the Wong Kim R case. They could have ruled narrowly and said, okay, well, for white immigrants from Europe, the 14th Amendment applies. We're going to read into the attention of the founders uh-huh. and say that was it, but not towards these other people. And I'm not saying they did this out of the goodness of their heart, but what it means is that the structure of the United States was built in such a way that a compelling argument was made by Wong Kim Ark's lawyers that they just could not deny. Hmm. And who knows what went on through the heads of these people. For example, only like the dissenter in the Plessy v. Ferguson case, I'm forgetting his name, the judge who also ruled on this case was like virulently anti-Chinese. So he was in a dissent on the Wong Kim Ark case, even though he ruled on behalf of black folks in the Plessy case, Mm -hmm. he ruled against Wong Kim Ark. So there's this thing too, where it's like, this is one of the weaknesses I think of the Supreme Court. These people are not machines, right? They're human beings with opinions and biases and all that stuff. So where I would agree is that yes, in a way, and you can see this in Wong Kim Ark's story, it's not like after that his life was great and life was easy for all Chinese American immigrants. In a way it did solidify that, but I would say it didn't solidify it necessarily legally. What it did was open up the door, I think, for breaking down of the racial hierarchy a little bit. It allowed for more Chinese Americans to basically say, look, we're citizens, we're part of this country, and their descendants have gone on to become, as you know, we learned with Wang Kim Ark's children and grandchildren, have went on to serve in the U.S. military, have gone on to like mm-hmm. become really fully entrenched and enmeshed within the fabric of what makes up the United States. Because what makes this country beautiful, what makes this country, I think, a place that I love to live in is that so many people have come from across the world and shaped its culture. Right. When you go to France, and this is not a knock on France, I have many people, many friends who live in France, and I go there all the time. It's a French country. So friends of mine who are from Guinea or Senegal who go there, they can feel French, but never quite feel French, Hmm. if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Like, there's always this line where it's like, you're not from here. This has been our land for thousands of years. We're from here. We're tied to this land. And that's the attitude that some conservative French people have. You can't really have that. That almost seems clownish when you hear kind of nativist Americans say that. When people are like, oh, it's our country. Like, no one can come in here because almost no one that's here, it's not your land. Your ancestors came recently, and the only people who had been living here for thousands of years are Native Americans, right. who, <laughs> many of whom who, who are still around, of course, but they're the only people who can claim that. So there's a strength almost in that. And I think the Wong Kim Ark case opened up the doors for more people to really entrench their own identities within the larger American fabric. 
I love that perspective. And you're absolutely right. We bring this up quite frequently on our podcast that anybody living in America other than Native Americans probably finds some immigrant connection in their lineage, of course. which they tend to deny. But the fact remains, right? Talking about Wong Kim Mark's case, I want to go back to the legal protections. So, Mm -hmm. again, the court ruled in favor of his citizenship and therefore he became legally protected under the law. But that doesn't mean, and as you mentioned, that his identity was still deemed as unwanted in many people's eyes, right? It remained like that. What were some of the feelings or some of the emotions you were feeling as you covered this story? I don't know if you drew any parallels with your own experiences as an immigrant in America. Yeah, so I think one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode and I felt so strongly about it is that I'm a naturalized citizen. My son is a birthright citizen. Mm. He was the first person in my family who was an American citizen because he was born here automatically. He didn't have to do any paperwork. He didn't have to go do any kind of pledge or anything like that, like I had to do in the rest of my family. I became naturalized when I was a teenager. So for me, it's something very conscious and in my head. And I remember, you know, it's a part of my identity. Hmm. And I think about how it's not for him. But then I think about like, people had to fight and suffer for this. Right. This isn't something that was just written into the 14th Amendment and that was it. Done. That... Over the generations, people had to have their citizenship and their birthright citizenship questioned over and over. And they had to fight, fight, and fight. And Wong Kim Ark represents one of the first fights, right? One of the most consequential fights, the one that really opened the door. But I felt intense levels of empathy for what he went through, right? I felt so proud in a way mm. that he that I count Wong Kim Ark as one of my ancestors that he was mm. a person that opened the door for any immigrant who's moved to this country we should look to someone like him I'm just pointing him out in our story but there are many other people like him who opened the doors for the rest of us to come here and they did that through their own suffering mm. you know his life wasn't easy before this case and it wasn't easy after for the rest of his life he had to deal with people looking at him and saying not you're not an American citizen you know we talk about how years after the case in New Mexico he was arrested while he was in New Mexico the reasons for his arrest aren't totally clear right but we do know that they weren't letting him out of prison because they didn't believe he was a citizen and they were like you need to prove to us you're a citizen and he ended up having to get the documents from the Supreme Court like copies of the Supreme Court ruling they didn't believe that it took forever he got a lawyer to help him and he finally got out after paying $300 which back then would have been the equivalent of 12,000 plus dollars a lot of money for someone Mm. like him at that time Mm. so the emotions I felt was look this guy went through all of this stuff even he knew at the time that this was consequential. His lawyers did. The Chinese six companies who supported him right. financially, they all understood what this meant for not only Chinese Americans, but all immigrants who were going to come here. They understood how monumental it was. And they did it. They did it for us, in a way, even though they don't know any of us. And for me, that was the power of working on this episode. It was really taking in how much better I had it versus he had it. Mm. And the only parallels I can see or that I felt is in the years after 9-11 in particular, there was a sense, and at the time, you know, I was 
kind of transitioning into adulthood, getting ready to go to college soon. I felt at that time a real sense of like, is this my country? Am I from here? Am mm. I ever going to be accepted? And it wasn't as acute, right? I think the experience we had as many other Muslim Americans, like my dad made us all put American flags everywhere on our cars, on our house, everywhere. And so it was a very fearful moment, but nothing like what Wong Kim Ark experienced. You know, I never had to be held on a boat or held in a jail cell because no one believed I was an American citizen. And I'm really grateful for the sacrifices that he and other people made in order for that to have been the case. This episode is brought to you by Libsyn. Do you have an idea for a great new podcast? You can bring your idea to life and start your podcast today with Libsyn. Our podcast has been on Libsyn for almost three years and we love it. Libsyn has everything you need to plan, launch and grow your podcast. Libsyn provides some of the best resources created by expert podcasters who will show you everything you need to know. Like what equipment you should use, how to record great audio, how to get your show onto Apple Podcasts and other popular platforms, and much more. Plus, as a friend of Immigrantly, when you sign up with Lipson, you get your first month of podcast hosting for free. Isn't that amazing? There has never been a better time than right now for you to start podcasting. Visit Lipson.com and use code FRIEND, F-R-I-E-N-D, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com and use code FRIEND, F-R-I-E-N-D to get started and create your podcast today. As you said, the fight continues, right? And it's tiring mentally, physically, emotionally. Every time I go to the airport and I'm pulled aside for a quote-unquote random check, it drives me crazy. As a nationalized citizen, why am I being subjected to that, right? And you know very well, it's not random. It's never random. So my question to you is, how do we recalibrate the narrative so that we don't have to fight or justify our existence in America as immigrants, naturalized citizens, undocumented immigrants. Mm -hmm. What is the missing piece here? It's an excellent question, one which I struggle with a lot. I'll tell you a, a little story. In 2014, my wife and I went to Turkey. We were dating at the time, but we went to Turkey to my cousin's wedding. My cousin lived in Iran, and like many Iranians, they go to Turkey to get married because <laughs> it's more free. It's Men and women can be together at the wedding, and it's much easier, et cetera. So anyway, we went there for a couple of weeks, and this is a, towards the end of like the ISIS era. If you remember, a lot of people would enter Syria through Turkey, right, who were going yeah. to fight with ISIS. And we went for the wedding, and we visited Istanbul, and we came back. And when we were coming back in France... They took me aside. I think on two different of our flights, they took me aside and randomly checked me. (laughs) It wasn't fun, never is. But the people that were randomly checked me, like one of the guys was himself Muslim. He was Pakistani. They were nice. And after it was done, my wife was, she's also an immigrant. She's from the Dominican Republic. She was mad. 
she was pissed off. She's huh. like, why did, like, how can they do that? Like, she'd only ever seen me go through that once before. And uh, she's like, I'm just so angry on your behalf. Why aren't you more angry? And I wasn't angry. Right. I wasn't angry. I'll be honest, I wasn't. I told her, like, if I was angry about this each time, I wouldn't be able to function. I wouldn't be able to live my life. I would walk around mad all the time because it would feel like, you know, why am I being singled out? I, I didn't do anything. I don't feel as American as anyone else. And like, I'm kind of stuck in between being Iranian and American, right? And it's like, I need to latch on to one of these identities and feel like I belong in them. And what I realized then, and this is what I struggle with, is like, maybe I should have been angrier. And what happens when we aren't vigilant and aren't able to conjure up that sense of like this is not right this isn't fair uh. and that's what I struggle with is like I live in this space where I'm like well I can't be mad about it all the time and I think a lot of other people who are immigrants who go through that particularly Muslim American immigrants from Middle Eastern countries or South Asian countries have this struggle right where you're trying to balance how you can like be productively engaged every day and not think about it too much those moments or whatever and not let those moments get to you too much and how not to and the solution that I've come to is to really accept the fact that, like, no matter how difficult that is, it's not the same thing as what other people had to go through in the past. And if anything, I should use that as fuel to make sure that, like, the stories of the kind of struggles people have gone through in the past really inform the way we think about things today. Mm -hmm. And right now, I genuinely believe the immigrant groups that are most targeted are from Central America and Mexico from Latin America, but yeah. particularly those parts of Latin America. And you'll see in 2022 and 2024, this issue will come up again. Birthright citizenship will come up again. And it's not because of Middle Eastern or Muslim or South Asian immigrants. We're not numerous enough, I think, to have that level of impact yet. But I think it will be for economic reasons. They will point to Central and South Americans and say, look, they're taking our jobs. Hmm. And I think it's important for us as immigrants to support the humanity of Absolutely. those other immigrants. You can have debates about what immigration should be, what legal immigration and illegal immigration and all those discussions. Like, I'm not taking a position on those. But I will say that we can always fight back against dehumanization of people mm. who are coming here because they're coming here the same way Wong Kim Ark did. They're coming here the same way or for the same reasons people from Germany and from Italy and from Ireland did. They're coming mm. here for a better life because this country does represent economic prosperity sometimes mm. or they're escaping really difficult situations mm. and, say, and running for their lives. Mm. And so we've done several episodes on this topic because we think it's an important one and one that needs to stay in the political conversation that we can't take for granted because it will rear its head. I guarantee, I tell everyone this, it's going to be an issue in upcoming elections. So it's something we should all be thinking about. Ramdi, there are so many things I want to follow up on. Please. First, you mentioned economic reasons, right? So mm -hmm. a lot of times immigrants are scapegoated because of that. They are taking our jobs, blah, blah, blah. I see a fundamental flaw in that reasoning, economic reasoning, right? I feel like when we place an immigrant's permissibility into the United States on their ability to contribute to economic well-being of America, mm -hmm. we make them more vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe the conversation should be more around the morality or what America really embodies, which is America is a country of immigrants, and we've had immigrants for the longest time. We don't have to justify their existence in America based on how economically 
valuable they are. So that's one piece of the argument. I just want to clarify, though. I want to say I agree with that. And I only mentioned that argument to say that that is an argument generally used against Absolutely. Right. migration. You know what I mean? And I think it's a clever construction. I'll be honest with you. I think it's usually cynical, that argument. Hmm. I think most people who make this argument about Mexican-American and Central American migrants, they understand that actually, you know, many of the jobs that they're filling, they're not competing with right. American citizens, right? I'm putting that in air quotes. They're not competing with the people who have papers, right? Like, that's not what's happening here. And they understand that. But in my opinion, a cynical political construction because it plays well. Right. Inside, outside groups for all of us. And I'll be honest, this happens to people. I see it on the left and right. You create an inside and outside ideological group and mm. then it's very easy to dehumanize them. There are deep reasons for this that evolutionary psychologists have written extensively about. It's part of our human nature. And so it seems to me if you want to win a political race, it's really an easy way to do it, right. to get people riled up and on your side. So I agree with you. I think by then engaging in that debate, you're almost taking what I believe to often be a very cynical argument and legitimizing it. This is my personal view. I'm taking my kind of journalist hat off. I think what can be a cynical argument by politicians when you engage to say, like, well, well no, these immigrants have high tech skills and these immigrants. Have this. So I agree with you on that. When you start to do that, you're almost walking into like a rhetorical trap which seems to me to be a mistake because I genuinely don't think that the people who make that argument against migration really mean it because I think they know that there's not really a rational argument underneath that. Absolutely. And the second part of my question is, given that we have this hyper-conservative Supreme Court and we just saw Roe versus Wade being overturned, how vulnerable, in your opinion, is birthright citizenship right now? How scared should we be? Again, this is just my opinion based on the reading. People tell me all the time that I'm being hyperbolic, but I think it is under threat. This court is very literalist, right, in the way they're interpreting the Constitution. Hmm. And I think there is a universe in which they could argue that the government should have more of a right to decide who is and isn't covered under the 14th Amendment in terms of birthright citizenship. And I think where it's going to apply is if your parents came to this country undocumented, hmm. why should you then be, this is the argument they're going to make, why should you then have your citizenship recognized? Because your parents technically broke the law. And that is where they could potentially yeah. challenge it in the court. And I do think there is a possibility that the Supreme Court could rule in favor of that argument. Now, the question then becomes, if that happens, does that then open the door for further testing mm. of who birthright citizens should apply to or not? And yeah, I genuinely believe with this court and depending on where the political winds blow over the next five to ten years, there is a serious serious threat to birthright citizenship in the construction that it has now, which is basically you're born here, you're a citizen, which just, again, taking my journalist hat on, which is what I think is the correct interpretation of it, which is a uniquely American, well, not completely uniquely American, is one of the positive things about Americans' immigration kind of paradigm. Right. And um, I do think it's with this court and where politics are going, I do think it's under threat. And therefore, 
we need to really another reason why we did this episode people need to understand its history so they can understand like what these arguments have been in the past and what they'll likely to be in the future yeah and people just go vote in the midterms of course so i want to circle back to wonking arcs episode which again was such a fascinating episode and while the story itself is so interesting i also want to center a little on the legal side of the things and how the case went through multiple district courts until eventually it was placed in front of the supreme court supreme court now the case itself along with many others you mentioned a few plessy versus ferguson brown versus board of education and the one that is currently on the hot seat roe versus wade they are all predicated on the 14th amendment right mm-hmm. how familiar are you with this case's legal proceedings because i am interested in knowing about the way in which wong's case drew from either precedent or depended on it. So I'm not a legal scholar, but I'll give you an answer based on the research and the work we did on this episode. So the 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War, and its intention was to make sure that there was equal recognition under the law for Black Americans. Right. That was it. Because at the time, the federal government realized, okay, The Civil War is over. Slavery as an institution is over in the United States. However, we have number of states who don't want to recognize that. Who don't want the actual practical application of this new legal framework in the United States to happen. So, they passed the 14th Amendment and essentially more or less required it to be ratified by the states if they wanted to be part of the United States. Once that happened, it set off a series of events because for many people in southern states they viewed this as forced on them that this forced a new way of looking at the world on them and frankly maybe they have an argument there about it being forced on them because a war was fought over this the us fought to become a modern nation in which it had equal rights for all of its citizens etc under the law right of course right. application is different that you can argue that still hasn't happened right. but at least under the law the union army fought to make that happen there's a legal framework for it now exactly and it was fought for hmm. like literally people died to make that happen in a bloody horrific war <laughs> i just want to remind people that like we can have all these intellectual arguments and debates and stuff but to make this version of the us become real hmm. people had to fight for it yeah okay so the 14th amendment's passed and then even though it is pretty clear that everyone should have equal protection under the law no one's basic rights should be violated anyone born here is a citizen right all yeah. of that's very clear it's still vague enough that you can pass laws to try to circumvent it so you can try to create a situation where schools are segregated and you can say you know look they're segregated but they're the same they're equal but right. we don't want to go to school together and so that comes up obviously roe versus wade becomes a part of that ultimately the supreme court's job is to rule whether those kinds of laws meet the standard of the 14th amendment or do they violate them hmm. and going back to our earlier part of our conversation this really depends on who's on the court and what the political moment is so when it comes to the wong kim arc case One thing we failed to talk about earlier, I'm sorry I didn't mention, is the Chinese Exclusion Act. Right. So the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in the 1870s, I think 1872, 
And it was designed essentially to say that basically Chinese workers were excluded from entering the United States. Hmm. So they wouldn't take American jobs, jobs. white American (laughs) jobs, right? Pretty much white American jobs. And it did allow merchants to come. So let's just be clear. When the U.S. even then had deep economic ties with China, just like it does now. It needed China. It got stuff from China. Chinese workers contributed to the development of the West. Chinese merchants helped develop the Western part of the United States. And so they made sure to carve out exceptions for big money. Hmm. That's another thing that was a part of this story, which is economics and that the upper classes are usually exempt from these kinds of things. They're targeting working class people or workers. So the Chinese Exclusion Act prevented workers from coming to this country from China. That's it. Now, that was challenged in court several times, and it survived most of the challenges. So when this case came up, the reason why the U.S. government pushed this to the Supreme Court, so let's just talk Mm -hmm. about what happened. Wong Kim Ark is prevented from coming into the country after going to visit China because something I talked about earlier, the PAGE Act, Chinese women weren't allowed into the United States. And because interracial marriage was very much socially and legally discouraged Mm. uh, at the time, many Chinese men, even those who were born here, Chinese-American male citizens, had to go back to China to get married, to start families. Naturally, they wanted to start families. So Wang Kim Mark had to do that. He went back to China as a young man to get married and came back to the U.S. to work and live his life here. And then he would go back every couple of years to see his kids that he had, basically, to see his wife. And he did this journey a few times. And on this one journey, he was coming back in 1894, I believe. He was prevented from coming into the country because they said, you're not a citizen. You're a worker. Mm. Look how you're dressed. You're dressed like a worker. You look like a worker. And he was saying, no, I have this affidavit that says I was born in San Francisco. I have. He needed at least a few white witnesses to say yeah. that, oh, I know this guy. He lives down the street. He was born here. Even with that, they didn't let him in. And that's because the U.S., government had decided we want to get a test case in front of the Supreme Court or at some level of the court system to make sure that there's not a loophole in the Chinese Exclusion Act. Because Mm. this was a loophole for any of those people that were born here, basically before the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed or even after, who were workers. We need to get them out of the country, too. We need to prevent them from being here. And so they brought this case. You know, they started it, really by preventing him from coming into the country. The Chinese six companies, which were this consortium of very rich Chinese men who owned companies based in San Francisco, they were set up to help Chinese migrants and Chinese people in the United States. They were a benevolent association, Mm -hmm. which is what it was called at the time. And they quickly heard about this when Wang Kim Ark was held. So he wasn't allowed in the United States. He was held on a steamer, Steamer, which is basically a, a ship off the coast. He's held on the steamer. The Chinese six companies have lawyers on retainer, white lawyers, white progressive lawyers on retainer, basically, to help with these cases. They hire one of those guys. They get them over there. They start to challenge Wang Kim Ark's detention. It goes all the way to the district court in California, the highest court in California. Mm. The highest court in California, after several months, eventually rules You can't keep him on that steamer. He has legal proof that he was born in the United States under the 14th Amendment as we read it. Can't keep him on there. You got to let him go. So they let him go. And that's when the U.S. 
government got involved. So then the Solicitor General basically brings a case to say, we challenge this, we're going to appeal this up to the Supreme Court. They successfully do. And then it ends up in front of the Supreme Court. But we should note, and Amanda Frost was very, put this very strongly, this was planned by the U.S. government. They thought, we're going to take this to the Supreme Court. This is a friendly Supreme Court at the time to their views. And they said, we're going to win and that's it. The Chinese Exclusion Act will have all of its loopholes closed and we won't have any more cemented. Exactly. Yeah. And that was why it got to the Supreme Court and that's what they expected to happen. And the drama in the story in the case is that if you were looking at this from an outside as an observer, an objective observer, you would say Wonky Mark's going to lose. Hmm. This Supreme Court had ruled in the yeah. past against Chinese plaintiffs who were challenging the Chinese Exclusion Act. So it didn't look good. And the central legal argument is that Wong's lawyers are saying He's born here, and if you don't recognize his citizenship, then essentially you're throwing out the citizenship of all of the European migrants who've come here in the 19th century, who never got their papers, who never bothered to do that. And these people have been running for office, they've been involved in politics, they're business people, they're workers, they're at all levels of society. And if you don't recognize his citizenship and Chinese-American citizenship, then you're defaulting all of theirs. That's their, like, checkmate argument. And on the other end, this is what's fascinating. Conrad, who's the lawyer, it's the last name of the lawyer for the Solicitor General for the U.S. government, was himself, he fought in the Civil War. He was a high-ranking officer in the Confederate military. He makes the basic argument that the 14th Amendment itself is unconstitutional because it was forced on the southern states. So if you let Wong stay, if you recognize him under this, you're essentially encouraging undesirable migration to the United States. And their central argument is that because of that, you have to rule in the government's favor and close the loophole because if you do this, you're also basically more or less saying that the Chinese Exclusion Act is unconstitutional. You're questioning that. And we wouldn't want to do that, right? Because we all agree we want to keep Chinese people out. And that was a central argument that the government was making. You know, the irony is that Solicitor General himself was stripped off his citizenship, right? <laughs> That's right. That's a fascinating part of this story is that after the Confederacy loses the Civil War, Many of these people had their citizenship taken away temporarily, but basically they were no longer citizens of the United States because they had rebelled against right. the U.S. So the irony is lost on him, clearly, <laughs> uh, given the arguments he was making in court. But it points to just how, I mean, if you look back at it now, the government's arguments were pretty weak legally. I'm not a lawyer, but most of the legal scholars yeah. agree that's a weak argument. And it's the reason why ever since the Wong Kim Ark verdict, there hasn't been a viable case that has come to question birthright citizenship again, because legally it's very difficult to undermine, although it could happen. From one podcast to another, how vital is storytelling in building democracy? Because both of us are storytellers, right? That's a great question. Oh my gosh. That's an awesome question. I'm going to write that down after this. I'm not going to steal your question, but I'm going to like keep that in my mind and heart. I think from working on a history show, what I've taken away is that a lot of things we think of as permanent or as well entrenched and immovable are not immovable. Hmm. Things can change in any governmental system. In democracy, 
of all the different ways to organize a government is probably the most vulnerable to chaos and difficult situations. So when really bad things happen, either economically or militarily, like if events cause uncertainty and chaos in a country, democracy can always come under threat. Mm. You know, it's important to remember, like one of the things I was talking to someone the other day is about, we were talking about World War II in Japan. I was explaining like in the early 20th century, Japan was a democracy. And by the mid 20th century, they had an emperor that they had convinced much of the population to believe was God. Like everyone doesn't understand. Like they think it's like, oh, Japan, just this is just its history. They always believe the emperor was divine. That's not true. It was under a military dictatorship where sophisticated, robust propaganda was used to raise a generation of people to believe the emperor was essentially divine figure and that the military was his hand. Mm. And I'm just saying, if we are not humble, if we do not believe that our democracy or any other system of government is not vulnerable to that level of change, so as a result, how do you further entrench the democracy? I think stories are a way of building mythology. And mythology isn't bad automatically. This is my argument. We have a modern notion in our scientific society that mythology is automatically a bad thing. Hmm. But mythology teaches lessons. It imparts values. And what are myths but stories? Really good stories. Hmm. And ultimately, you can use truth to tell stories that impart value, widen people's perspectives. And it's that which creates a kind of armor against misinformation, against fear, uncertainty, and the very natural human instinct to move those things like fear and vulnerability Mm. to violence, to hatred, to xenophobia. And I think more than ever, people who are doing podcasting, particularly narrative-based podcasting, have a responsibility to use their platforms, in my opinion, to continue to tell stories that impart very basic values about human life, human freedom, and the fact that we all should be respected regardless of what our views Mm -hmm. are or where we're from. And I don't know how you can make a political argument against that. And frankly, I think whether you're conservative or you're progressive, these are things that we should be able to agree on. So that's the first thing. The last thing I'll say is stories are also what bind us together. And it feels like today more than ever, we don't have a shared narrative. We don't have a common shared set of values from which we're having debates. I don't mean that as like, oh, some kind of rosy colored glasses about like, oh, shared values, et cetera. It used to be great. No, it's more about the fact that in an atomized society like we're living in, where we're all sitting on our computers, reading news that an algorithm is feeding to us, Mm. we are all in our own universes. And storytelling is a way to draw people out of that atomized world and into a shared world. One in which we like agree on some basic ideas and values. And so I think it's really important for us to tell those stories in a way that doesn't just give someone an ideology, mm. but imparts basic values and a shared narrative. And that's what we try to do on mm. Throughline. I know that's what you're doing and many other great people who are working in the audio mm. space are doing with narratives. So I think, yeah, it's important. It's really more mm. important than ever, given how much people are consuming mm. podcasts, how much time they're spending with shows like ours. We need to 
take this responsibility seriously. I love it. So in the end, I normally ask my guests to define America in a word or in a sentence, but we've been talking about America throughout this episode. <laughs> so I will tweak it a bit and say, in your opinion, who gets to be a citizen of the United States? Oh, man. Okay, so I will say this. Legally, anyone born here, anyone naturalized gets to be a citizen of the United States. Philosophically, mm-hmm. anyone who comes to this country, in my opinion, is an American. Anyone who comes to this country and lives here and sets up their life here is an American. So you're not an American if you're a tourist. But if you come here and you set down roots, you live here, you work here, you have your family here, you have all these other things, you are from this place. And I think that American history proves that because many of the most important people in the history of this country did not come here through a strict legal process or were either born here to parents who came here that weren't brought here, didn't come here through a strict legal process. And I think it's really important to remember that that definition shifts. And so we need to strip it back to its most basic thing, which is if you come here, you set up your life here and you want to be a part of this place, you should be a part of this place. That's my personal opinion. And I think it's backed up by American history. I love it, Ramtin. Oh my gosh, this was such a phenomenal, interesting, intriguing interview. We would love to have you back whenever, maybe another episode. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been so much fun and one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. You ask amazing questions and this is just fascinating. Let's do it anytime. Wow, I'm speechless. This was one of my favorite episodes for this season. If you haven't listened to Wong Kim Ark's episode, please do. If you don't listen to Throughline, start listening. It is one of the best podcasts out there. This episode was produced by Kinza Muzahir and me, Sadia Khan, written by Sana Khan. The editorial review for this episode was done by Yudi Liu. Our amazing editor is Manny Simone. Until next time, take care. Thank you.